This is the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Now, here's Jason Jones. Aloha, everybody, and welcome to the Jason Jones Show. I am your host, Jason Jones, and today I... um, Today, we are going to be interviewing. No, we're not going to be doing interviewing. You're going to be listening, and I do all the work. This is how our relationship is, guys. We're going to be interviewing the great Carter Sneed. Carter Sneed is the director of the De Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture at Notre Dame. He's a member of the Pontifical Academy for Life, the principal bioethics advisor to Pope Francis, and he is a fellow of the Hastings Center. But, but more importantly than all of that, he is one of the kindest, most wonderful human beings I've ever met. That he exemplifies what it means to be a friend, a father, a husband. He is a mensch. He is a great man. And he wrote, according to the Wall Street Journal, one of the most important books of 2020. But I say that's an understatement. What It Means to Be Human, Carter Sneed's new book, The Case for the Body and Public Bioethics, is a book I want everyone to read. And that's why this episode is being brought to you by Movie to Movement. And anyone who supports Movie to Movement this month will get a free copy of Carter's book. So go to movietomovement.com, donate, watch our new movie, Divided Hearts of America, and you will see Carter Sneed. He is in the movie being interviewed by the great Benjamin Watson himself, Or if you donate to the Vulnerable People Project, this book aligns perfectly with the mission of the Vulnerable People Project, standing in solidarity with the vulnerable and advancing their interest. Any donor to the Vulnerable People Project this month at thegreatcampaign.org will get a free copy of Carter's book. We We will send it out to you. I must also remind you that this episode is being brought to you by the best pillow in the world, my pillow. What does it mean to be human? It means you need a pillow and there is no better pillow than my pillow it is machine washable it won't go flat it is made in the usa if you don't have my pillow you need to get one if you have one and you have other folks that you have obligations to like your wife and children and you're sleeping with my pillow and they're they've got a regular old pillow shame on you you got to go to mypillow.com and make sure your spouse and your children your parents they need to have the same pillow you have And right now, Mike is offering a buy one, get one on his Giza sheets. They are made made with the world's best cotton called Giza, grown only in a region between the Sahara Desert, the Mediterranean Sea, and the Nile River. It's a long staple cotton, makes it ultra soft and breathable. It has a sateen weave. It has a luxurious finish. It's available in multiple colors, styles, and sizes. It's machine washable and durable and has a 10-year warranty. And... A 60-day money-back guarantee. Mike Lindell says, the first night you sleep on my sheets, you will never want to sleep on anything else. That is true. I know it because since we've gotten the Giza Dream sheets, my seven-year-old sleeps in my bed every night. I guess I got to get him some. Go to MyPillow.com. Click on the radio listener square. Use the code Jones for deep discounts on the sheets, on the pillows, on the mattress topper and everything else they have there at MyPillow.com. All right, let's interview Carter Sneed on his great new book, What It Means to Be Human. It's the Jason Jones Show. 
Carter Sneed. Welcome to the Jason Jones Show. Hi, Jason. It's great to be back with you. Yeah, it's a privilege to have you on, brother, because first of all, I owe you as a friend a deep apology. You sent me this book when it was in manuscript form and asked for my thoughts and notes. And I thought this your book would be inaccessible to me and I would be of no use to you. And so I just didn't get around to it. <laughs> and then when I read it, I mean, I, first of all, then I was sort of shocked that someone whose cell phone number I have in my phone wrote this book because, Carter, I believe the, the Wall Street Journal said it's one of the most important books of 2020. I really think it's one of the most important books written in the English language in the modern times. And, I, and, and as I was reading it, first of all, it's jarring, you know, um, because you quickly realize the profound insights you have is that the law in forgetting the body cannot even see the vulnerable. Uh, but then it's infused with this beauty. It's like poetry in the way, you know, your book sings a call for kindness, for friendship, for solidarity with the vulnerable, to sharing in the sufferings for the, of the other, to reminding ourselves of who we are. We are actually creatures with bodies. And it's, it's one of these books that I want everyone in the world to read. And it is accessible. It is powerful. It is beautiful. It is poetry. And uh, so just thank you for writing the book. Well, thank you for those very kind words. And I, I'm, I'm just humbled and grateful that, that the book had that impact on you. And that's, that's precisely the argument that I was trying to make to appeal to our, our, our common humanity. And, and, you know, the core of the book is the insight that by virtue of the fact that we are embodied beings, that we live as bodies and we experience one another in the world around us as bodies, that we are made for love and friendship. And, uh, and the law doesn't understand that concept of embodiment, at least in, not in the vital conflicts of American public bioethics. And as a result, it is not adequate to the task of providing for human needs and aspirations, especially the most vulnerable among us, um, uh, in all of its fullness and complexity. Well, I mean, what was most jarring about the book was how just the law can't see the vulnerable and how it changes how we are, see ourselves and others and how we live. And it, the, the book it most reminded me of in its sort of depth and accessibility and importance is The Closing of the American Mind. It was the only other book I could put in the same category with your book. And in that book by Alan Bloom, he has this sense of loss for eros or love. And I found that in your, your book as well, that that what it means to be human is being lost because the law has forgotten who we are. But before we get to your book, I want to ask, because in reading this book too, by the way, you could see a lifetime of disciplined thought, disciplined study. And it's also one of those books that you're going to open up your, your cart wherever you buy your books online. And it's going to fill up quite quickly because there's so many books in there that I, I probably spent $150 in books reading your book. Um, <laughs> and I have to get this book and this book. Um, what was your inciting incident in, in your life that sort of led you down this thoughtfulness yeah. to the fragility of, of the human person? Yeah. So I, um, I had the great honor of serving as the general counsel of President Bush's Council on Bioethics uh, in the early 2000s, uh, chaired by the extraordinary Leon Cast, who is a trained as a scientist and physician, but is but taught in the humanities at at the University of Chicago with his wonderful wife, Amy, uh, until their retirement several years ago. And one of the things I noticed, and I'd always been pro-life, and I'd always kind of been 
focused on the question of the legal protection of the unborn child, situated in, as, as as you do as well, situated in the context of the larger question of, of the powerful exploiting the weak. And, and my kind of, you and I share a sort of visceral reaction to the idea of powerful people pushing weaker people around. It really, it really bothers me almost like nothing else does. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I got working on these questions of bioethics, cloning, embryo research, end of life decision making, and of course, always attending to the question of abortion and, and just wondering why is it that American law uh, so frequently fails to to protect the weakest and the most vulnerable in those contexts? Why is that? And, you know, after working for the council and teaching and researching and being here at Notre Dame and at the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture, what finally occurred to me is like the root of the problem. Uh, and this is a Catholic insight, even though it applies to everybody, no matter what their views are on these ultimate questions. What there's a problem at the root is fundamentally misunderstanding what a human being is, not in the sense of when life begins, but like what a human being is in the sense of who you and I are and what constitutes our flourishing and so I decided to take a look, at sort of an inductive look at what the law, um, how the law describes us and assumes what we are. And what I found was that it's a very flattened and impoverished false account of who we are. And the edifice of the law is built on top of that. And so maybe that's a great place to start then with those two fundamental questions. What is the human person and what is law? Yeah, so, so what I found when I looked at these legal areas, first of all, the most important thing for your audience to understand, a lot of people who are not lawyers or law professors, they think about law and morality or law and ethics as completely separated. And the, and the suggestion that law should have some point of contact or be animated by a particular understanding of morality or ethics seems problematic or worrisome. People say, well, don't, you know, don't impose your law and your, your morality through the law. Well, the first point that I've tried to make in the book is that law itself is irreducibly normative, meaning it's irreducibly grounded in a conception of some good to be pursued or some harm to be avoided. It's grounded in principles of justice. It's grounded in the conception of human freedom. And there's just no getting around that. Even you take something as basic as a speed limit, that speed limit is a number and it's not just an arbitrary regulatory pronouncement, what it is, is it represents a kind of deliberative process in which people were debating and discussing and thinking through issues, competing and balancing goods such as commerce and environmental protection, human safety and efficiency and all these other kinds of things. And what you end up with is that number, you know, and, and, and the richest way to understand that any law at all is to drill down and ask the question of what goods is this law meant to serve and what, what harms is it meant to avoid? So there is no law that is not grounded in the principles of justice or morality or ethics. It just it would be arbitrary and capricious otherwise, right? But then I argue, and so that's important for people to understand that law always is grounded in a particular moral vision. There's no way around it. Um, and that being true, you can look at law and learn things about the people who enacted that law. You can learn about what they cared about, what they're afraid of, and so on. But you can also uh, you can also draw insights about the, the people who live under that law, who take their bearings, rightly or wrongly, on goodness and badness and justice and equality based on what the law prescribes. Now, that the law is an imperfect teacher, but the law is a teacher of these kinds of things. And so, um, and so that's the first point that I'd like to make about law. But then the second point is law exists for the sake of serving persons. It exists for the sake of promoting the flourishing of persons 
It exists for the sake of protecting persons, which means that law, if it's going to be intelligible and non-arbitrary and not capricious, it has to operate from an assumption or set of assumptions about what and who persons are and what their flourishing is. Otherwise, the law is utterly disconnected from its purposes, which means that it's unintelligible or worse. And so because law is grounded in a vision of human identity and flourishing, the richest understanding of law is to drill down as deeply as possible and figure out what, who does the law think I am? Who does the, what, what does the law consider my flourishing to be? What, uh, and, 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 and then the, and then the fundamental question is, does the law get that question right? Because if the law gets that question wrong, if it misunderstands who and what I am, then the protections and the, and the, the uh, um, incentives and deterrence that the law creates to, to advance my good are going to be completely problematic. And then you argue that since the Enlightenment, or even before the Enlightenment, but really since the Enlightenment, we've drifted away. The law has drifted from understanding who we are. Yeah, the law, absolutely right. So yep. the law's Sorry. slowly forgotten who we are to the point of now it doesn't even remember the human person. Yeah, the law reduces us. The vision of personhood that exists at the core of the, the areas of the law that I look at, the law of abortion, the law of end-of-life decision-making, and the law of uh, assisted reproductive technologies, what the law assumes about a person uh, in, in those contexts is a completely false and disconnected vision of what the reality is, the embodied reality is. That is, the law assumes that a person is defined purely by his or her will designed purely by his or her capacity to formulate choices about future and to really invent their own future directed plans by interrogating the interior of their self, regardless of their relationships to other people, regardless of their family connections, regardless of their connections to any tradition. It's entirely human flourishing under this framework is about thinking deeply about your own sentiments and desires and wants, formulating a future directed plan and pursuing it with all the ingenuity that you have. And everything else in the world is instrumental to that end. Human relationships are instrumental to that end. Your body, other people's bodies, nature, everything. Everything is instrumental and secondary to the real you, which is your mind and your will, and your flourishing is, is de derived in this way. And that's a vision that prioritizes cognition. It's it sort of it's what philosophers call dualistic. It, it privileges the mind and, and subordinates the body. If the body is merely inchoate matter to be to be bent and harnessed in service of projects of the will as our relationships to other people. And so and what and this has been called, this vision of identity and flourishing has been called by social scientists and philosophers expressive individualism. It begins with the person as an atomized individual will, abstracted from any social context, abstracted from any relationship, regards, doesn't take seriously the nature or, or the body or any, any kind of external natural phenomenon is a clue to the meaning of the world and what we are or what we should be. It regards relationships as transactional and instrumental. Uh, and it's really a world of strife. It's really a world of atomized, that is, isolated individual wills competing for their interests, sometimes collaborating, but frequently competing. And the moment that your uh, goals diverge from that of your partner, and your partner could be your wife or your kid or, or your grandparents, then you don't have to, you're not, you're no longer bound to that relationship. There is no such thing as unchosen obligations within this framework. And people who aren't capable of developing the cognitive 
direction that, uh, that constitutes this kind of flourishing aren't even recognizable as persons. So that includes the elderly suffering from dementia. That includes, of course, the unborn child. It includes the newborn child. It includes people with intellectual disabilities. It leaves behind the very weakest and most vulnerable among us. And, uh, and as Alistair McIntyre says, it's, it's entirely because it's forgetful of the body and defines us as essentially as a mind and a will and doesn't take seriously the fact that what we actually are are a dynamic union, an integrated union of mind and body. And your body is, is just as much a part of you as your mind is. You, you know, and, and just as you're saying that, it's what's, I, I feel lonely just hearing you say, say that because it's also a very lonely world. And then when we look, when we look in our life for models of who is happy, it's those people who serve, they choose to, to live up to those unchosen obligations or those who graciously allow others to live up to their um, unchosen obligations to them. You can think of a, a family with uh, a child with Down syndrome and his parents. And, I, and we're always struck, right? Why is Mother Teresa so... Uh, happy why are people who are missionaries why are people who serve the vulnerable so happy why are fathers who do their duty so happy and men who abandon their children so miserable and uh so is that the 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 arrow to the truth of because we have in your book you uh quote max scheller that we have all these competing we've never had um all these competing anthropologies so in a liberal society how do we choose which vision of the human person we're grounded in? how do we know which is true uh, to me, it's self-evident. Even as a young atheist, I was struggling for the source of the self-evident dignity of the human person. And when you talk about the will, because I was came from an irreligious family, raised by media and public education, my first thought when I was ambushed by the reality of abortion was, I will, by my will, I want to end abortion. That was I literally thought that, that it's my will against their wills, and I'm going to win. Um, no, that, that's right. That's exactly right. I mean, um, that that mentality of, of essentially a war of all against all and will overcoming will is what you're left with when you're when you only see the world through the lens of expressive individualism, which is very much uh, in the water and bloodstream of the American people and in Western culture more generally, especially since the middle of the 20th century when it kind of moved from the literary culture in the romantic era to uh, to popular culture and, and normal people, not artists or literary figures, began to think of themselves through this lens. And Robert Bella in his book, Habits of the Heart, from 1985, interviewed hundreds of people and, and Americans and asked them who they thought they were and what they thought their destiny was and what their flourishing was. And what he found was this kind of expressive individualism. People, my job is to sort of figure out my own interior, authentic truth, whatever that might be. It might very well be uh, antithetical to the mores of my community, and then to configure my life in accordance with that authentic truth and to pursue it uh, irrespective of any, any other attachments or infringements that might interfere with it. And as we're wrestling to figure out whoever that authentic self is, we're not thoughtful to the vulnerable and our obligations all around us. But we don't see them. They're, they're, uh, other relationships, other people are instrumental. And what you, what you, the word you use is lonely, and there's nothing lonelier. Because human beings are made, as I said, for love and friendship. Aristotle were said we're social animals. There's just no way around it, right? Like there's no way around it, uh, the idea that we are made for each other. As Mother Teresa said, we belong to each other. And the fact, the fact that uh, people who try to live alone 
ultimately um, are alienated and destabilized and disoriented and um, because that's not what a human being, that's not how we're built. That's not what we are. Uh, I mean, by virtue of our embodiment, we are vulnerable, we're mutually dependent, we're subject to natural limits, which orient us towards one another. That's the sort of beauty of God's creation. God created us in a way that we have to work together, we have to be dependent upon one another, we have to care for one another. And, and then, of course, the incarnation of Jesus uh, makes that even more emphatic, right? I mean, Jesus showed us what it, was, what it meant to be a human being, and Jesus' embodiment, his incarnation, is central to the Catholic faith, but it's also... You know, incarnational reality is understandable from it, from anyone, whether they're Catholic or not. So it's not a mistake we're mammals. God didn't just happen to make us mammals. It it's fundamental to the nature of of who we are as dependent creatures. It's a beautiful thing when you think about how dependent the human uh, the the human baby is compared to other mammals. We have a longer period of dependency than other. Now, some people say, well, that's because your brain has to get develop, keep developing to support, you know, human rationality. You wouldn't be able to get through the birth canal if your head was big enough, you know, to support all that brain development. So you are born before that happens and that, that process needs to move forward. But the truth is, the beautiful reality is that, that vulnerability means that from the very beginning, we are dependent for our very survival upon the beneficence of other people, people who put our needs in front of their own who aren't trying to be transactional, who aren't taking care. People don't take, take care of their babies because they have a contract to take care of their baby. They take care of their babies because they're their parents. That's the, and you, you come into this world in the womb in relation to other people, to your mother, to your father, to your community. And, and, that's, and so, I mean, just in the same way that the Trinity, God himself is a relationship. There's no human being that comes into the world who's not embedded in that kind of integrated relationship with another person. So if expressive individualism is not solid ground to root the law, where, where do we root? What is the anthropology we're advocating? Yeah, I, I, in the book, I advocate for what I call the anthropology of embodiment. And what I, I rely very heavily on my colleague here at Notre Dame, Alistair McIntyre, who's the author of After Virtue and is a very, very interesting and compelling Catholic philosopher, well, philosopher more generally, the most important philosophers of the 20th century, 21st century. And he himself is, you know, 90, 91 years old now, um, and, um, and is still um, an extraordinary inspiration. And in his book called Dependent Rational Animals, he talks about what is needed for people who, uh, you know, for embodied beings to flourish. And what he talks about are what we need to flourish, first of all, just to survive, but then to develop into what we're supposed to be, which is what he calls, after Aristotle, independent practical reasoners, to become free and, and, and able to, to do what we're supposed to do as flourishing human beings. You depend on what he calls networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving. These networks are composed of people who are willing to make the good of someone else their own good without seeking anything in return, without trying to get anything out of it, not because they have a contract, not because they have uh, uh, some kind of pre-existing obligation that they've agreed to, or, and not because they hope to get something out of it, but because they understand that what it means to be a human being is to practice these virtues uh, within this network. And those virtues include the virtue of just generosity, extending generosity to people simply in proportion to what their need is. The, the virtue of hospitality, welcoming the stranger because he or she is a stranger and caring for them, not because you have some ex-ante obligation, because that's what it means to be in relationship to that kind of a person. The 
the virtue of misericordia, which is the virtue of making another suffering your own suffering and trying to heal them or comfort them or just absent the possibility of those things just uh, to accompany them in that suffering. Pope Francis talks about this a lot. Those are the virtues of, ju- of just of, of, of uncalculated giving. And there are virtues of graceful receiving, the virtues of gratitude, uh, realizing that you didn't create yourself, realizing that uh, unlike Satan in, um, in Paradise Lost, who says we, we made ourselves to the army of fallen angels. We don't remember being created. We're not creatures. But the gratitude is the recognition that we are, in fact, creatures and that we owe a duty of, of, of care and obligation and gratitude to those whose, whose beneficence we depended on for our survival. But we depend on even now to define, even to do the things that self, uh, even to find our, our unique self forms of self-expression requires another person in a community and a civilization to do that. And gratitude also begets the virtue of humility, which allows you to, um, to, to realize uh, that uh, again, that you didn't you didn't create this world, and therefore you don't stand in a position of pure extraction and exploitation. And you realize that gifts are are, are given in a kind of um, a disproportionate way. And there are people who don't have the gifts that we have, and our obligation is to care for them. Uh, and it also makes you uh, respectful of difference. It makes you tolerant of imperfection. It makes you open to the unbidden. It makes you honest. Uh, it makes you respect the intrinsic equal dignity of every human being from conception to natural death. And it makes you basically it, it stands, it, it really, it, it could be described under the auspices of the good of friendship. Human beings are made for love and friendship and for people to flourish. They need these networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving. And so we should look at the law and ask the question, is the law supporting, creating, sustaining, and protecting these networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving? And if you look at the law of abortion, it becomes perfectly clear that it's not at all. What the law is doing, the law of abortion, is, is it frames the question by atomizing the woman, isolating the woman, isolating the unborn baby, and then framing the issue as a conflict among strangers who don't know each other, who have no obligations to each other. They're simply fighting over scarce resources. And so when you frame it that way, it's not surprising that the solution that the law comes up with is the, is the right to use violence to, to destroy the interloper. But the truth is, if you take a step back and you say, how do I reframe the question of abortion and the relationship of mother and unborn child within the framework of the network of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving, of which parenthood is at the, is at the heart, is the most pristine example of that network. And you say, this is a conflict or a crisis involving a mother and her baby. And it's a crisis that, that involves two human beings whose lives and bodies are intertwined in ways that are unlike anything else we can encounter in human experience. And then the question becomes, how do you care rightly for a mother and a child in crisis? And it's not just – and that framing constitutes a summons for you and for me and everybody else and the government, frankly, to come to the aid of that woman and that child and to support her and the baby and her family and the community – uh, not just during the pregnancy, but also after the pregnancy. And so you can see how fruitful the reframing within the anthropology of embodiment is and how it cares for everybody in the equation, not simply creating a narrative of every man for himself. Well, and on that note, you probably remember or are aware of that uh, several months after the dropping of the atomic bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, Bishop Fulton Sheen, uh, Father Fulton Sheen, maybe still at the time, I don't know, Father Fulton Sheen at Catholic University of America just six, six, seven weeks after Nagasaki and Hiroshima gave a lecture where he said the legalization of abortion became inevitable on August 6th because we're, we've taught 
our we're teaching our society that we can use violence to solve against the vulnerable to 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 um solve any problem and as you're talking about roe v wade and i think of the other cases you mentioned in your book for example uh the willowbrook um experiments can we talk about that how roe v wade yeah. because i was thinking of cuomo our movie which you are the star in you basically play obi-wan kenobi and uh <laughs> and benjamin watson is luke skywalker you're you're in our documentary divided hearts of america that movie was inspired we decided to make that movie when when Cuomo lit Freedom Tower up pink. And then when we Ugh. think of his direct and celebration of infanticide and then his directives that now made sense to me in reading your book, his directives in sending COVID patients to nursing homes. And now we've discovered group homes with uh, young people with uh, developmental intellectual disabilities. It makes sense. Cuomo could, and his people around him just couldn't see the vulnerable. Just they were, it was not even in their realm of thoughtfulness. Uh, you think of um, Joe Biden a couple of weeks ago said that the genocide against the Uyghur is a cultural norm. Uh, he can't see the Uyghur, and 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 he he turned when he turned his back on the Uyghur the day he turned his back on the preborn as an ambitious young politician. Uh, how do these all connect? Because you look at abortion, you look at um, uh, reproductive technologies, you look at how we treat the fragile and those at the end of life. You talk about Tuskegee, the poor. Um, there's a line of gesture, right? There's a thread that connects all of these issues that really are the same issue. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, I mean, American public bioethics has been a series of reactions to scandalous and shocking exploitation of the weakest and most vulnerable. Uh, you, you've named several examples. I mean, American public bioethics as a field of law and policy began in the late 60s and early 70s with reports of terrible research abuses by the most prestigious and important research bodies in the world, including the U.S. government, where we would go into, and you said Will Willowbrook was a uh, home in Staten Island for intellectually disabled children, and uh, researchers went into Willowbrook and injected those children with hepatitis. Uh, they didn't secure meaningful consent from their parents. They didn't talk about the consequences of doing that, and, um, you know, and, and this similar things happened in 22 research experiments detailed by a man named Henry Beecher in an article that came out in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1966. Um, you know, uh, the Tuskegee experiment was a 40-year uh, system of exploitation by the U.S. government against poor African-American sharecroppers in Macon County, Alabama, where I'm from. I'm from not Macon County, but I'm from Alabama. And uh, where we went in uh, and conducted what's called a natural history study of the progress of syphilis in that community, which had the highest incidents of syphilis of just about any community in America at the time. Uh, we went in there. We lied to those people. We told we told those sharecroppers that we were just testing them for, quote, bad blood. They were never advised uh, that they were being followed for syphilis. And then worse still, there was collusion with local healthcare and research entities there to prevent them from getting uh, antibiotics once antibiotics became the standard of care in the 1940s. Uh, in the middle of this program, um, they, they colluded to prevent them from getting antibiotics, which would have helped them, prevented them from the dread consequences of that disease. And then we've even had examples where American scientists have traveled to Scandinavia to perform painful uh, research on babies that had just been aborted but were still alive outside their mother's bodies. Uh, re grisly research that shocked the conscience when it came to light uh, in the Washington Post. And these are all examples 
uh, of an abortion is the same way, and 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 the in the way uh, you know even people who are treat who uh, seek assisted reproductive technology support, patients who are vulnerable, their children who are vulnerable, as well as people at the end of life. The common thread is that is that all of these folks are are. Are, are either not recognized at all by the law because they don't do the things, don't have the kind of radical capacity for freedom of the will that, that, that is necessary for flourishing under expressive individuals, either because they're intellectually disabled or because they're unborn children or because of the systemic racism or because of, you know, what they're prisoners or whatever, whatever the extrinsic or intrinsic circumstances are, they can't do the thing that expressive individualism recognizes as that which makes you a full person. And so, and they, and their voices were not heard and they were, you know, and, and, the, and these difficult and these, these tragedies came, scandals and, and examples of exploitation came to light. But the reaction of the law mostly to that is to frame the response and the protective measures to respond to those tragedies and those, and those crimes uh, as mechanisms that are only suitable to people who are capable of making autonomous choices. They say, okay, well, the, the, tr the way we can prevent another Tuskegee or another Willowbrook or whatever is to is to shore up informed consent, is to make sure that people are able to knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily agree to the risks and benefits of of this of this uh, research protocol. Well, you don't have to think very long to realize that that doesn't help. That framework doesn't help someone who's intellectually disabled. It doesn't help someone whose capacity for choice is completely frustrated by systemic racism and poverty. But it is a failure of imagination to think of everybody as a basically a rich white person who's operating at the at the height of their cognitive powers and then designing protections that are suitable to that population rather than to the genuine human population of people whose lives are affected in these cases. And it reminds me honestly, and I'll stop after this, but it reminds me of Jerry Brown, the former governor of California, when he signed into law that state's law legalizing assisted suicide over the objections of the disability rights community, over the objections of the African-American community, signing this into law saying, I, I, he said in his signing statement, I wanted the freedom. I wanted the freedom to discontinue life support or to, to, to take a, a lethal drug, to take my own life, to author the conclusion of my life story. That's what I wanted. That's why I'm signing this. And nothing could be more nested in the, in the framework of expressive individualism than a rich white governor of California talking about what he wants at the end of his life when he is privileged and, and able to make choices, able to blaze his own pathway, when the reality of the poor and the disabled and the elderly and those who are members of discrete and stigmatized minorities in the state of, of California who are already not getting good enough health care, that somehow legalizing assisted suicide imperils them in a way that he wasn't even cognizant of because he didn't even see those people. He did, you know, he didn't even see them. Do you know, we had the same thing in Hawaii. We had a lobbyist, a very influential lobbyist who had cancer, who cashed in all of his chips and said, I'm going to fight for assisted suicide because I want the right to it. Then it passed. Hawaii got it. And guess who decided he didn't want it anymore? Right. He had right. cancer. He said, oh, it's in remission. I'm good. I don't, this isn't for me. And um, it's, it's really heartbreaking. So we're either... We either have a preference, I always tell people, we either have a preferential option for the vulnerable or we have a preferential option for the powerful. There's just no right. in-between. Either you order your life to serve the vulnerable or you order your life to serve the powerful. And um, we have seen consistently we abandon the vulnerable. You know, Carter, what's even, in reading your book, what I, what, and as a parent, and you're a parent and you are, a, you are surrounded, you have the best job on earth because... 
no one ever gets old. Everyone, you know, you're always around young, beautiful people and, and um, who are excited to learn, being a college professor. So you're there, a steward for other people's children, and you are a father. What upsets me more, what scares me more, is not even the, the aspect of public policy, but how the law is the great teacher changes how we love, changes how we yeah. see ourselves. And my, to me, the greatest tragedy when, when I speak at college campuses is the death of eros, the death of risk and danger and all the things that come with acknowledging who we really are as embodied creatures, as human beings. How do we raise our children? How do we encourage our children? Maybe this is how I word it. How do we encourage our children to fall in love with God and fall in love with their neighbor? Because I think that's the only solution, right? They need to really have a passionate love affair with God and with their neighbor. And that's the yeah, only no, thing that will save them from the spirit of our age. No, that's true. And, 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 and the way we do that, I think, um, first of all, you and I, I think, are, you know, we think big and sometimes we're tempted to become disillusioned because the grand solution to a problem isn't obvious or, or it may not even seem possible because the problem is so deeply embedded. And we're reminded, you know, by the saints of the world, the lives of the saints, especially Mother Teresa, you know, that uh, a, a prophetic action of radical self-giving and hospitality and love uh, without any expectation of getting anything in return can really shock the conscience of people in the best way and disorient them in the best way and prepare their heart to realize that that's the pathway of being human, being fully human. We're most fully human when we're taking care of each other, not when we're pursuing our own ambitions. And I think with children, the important thing is to just love those kids as much as you possibly can, but also make sure they're always watching. As you know, they're always watching. And watch how you, when, you're, when, when you know they're with you and watching them, of course, when, also when they're not. But make sure that they see how you love other people. Make sure they see how you love your disabled neighbor or your elderly grandmother or, 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 the, or, the, or the people at the homeless shelter or the people at the crisis pregnancy center, right? Like if the kids are going to learn how to love by watching their parents. And frankly, and then by the way, let's, let's be even more basic, by how a man loves his wife, you know, by how a husband loves his wife. I mean, I can tell you, and I'm sure you've experienced the same thing. Kids watch very carefully how mommy and daddy love each other and how they, and when they're affectionate, you can tell kids are, when moms and dads are affectionate with each other, kids just get, they're, they're beaming. Uh, because the little civilization of love reinforces in their heart what I think God inscribed on their heart, which is the idea that love of neighbor and love of God are the fundamental loves. And, um, you know, it's, it's through witness, it's through teaching, it's, and, and most of all, it's just through loving the person that's right in front of you. Yesterday, I was teaching, I was teaching my, my students in law and bioethics seminar, great students, you know, mixed group, had different views, and we're teaching the, the section on abortion. And at the end of the talk, I just said, look, guys, you know, I think they know where I stand on these things. And, and, you know, some of them agree with me, some of them don't. And I said, look, guys, here's the thing. If, if you don't learn anything else from today's conversation, I want you to learn that what I want you to do and the thing that you're supposed to do is to go out and be friends with somebody who disagrees with you on this fundamental question. Care for them without any hope of getting anything back, without any cynical motive of changing their mind. Just love them unequivocally and care for them and do for them and help them uh, just because they're your brother or your sister. That is what it means to genuinely be human. And, and you know, I don't want you to 
balkanize yourself and sulk in your tents and your sort of culture war tents. You have to get out there and you have to be friends with people, especially with people who who don't see the world the way you do. Yeah, that's beautiful. And maybe the obstacle is the opportunity, right? The challenge of having the subhumanist ideology descend upon us is our opportunity to show heroic love. That's ex- I think so. I think so very much. And I think also that that kind of countercultural courage that it takes to do that in our balkanized world, especially with social media, which makes it a lot worse, is that it's a lot it's more intriguing and it's cooler. You know, there's nothing cool. There's nothing punk rock or cool about, about like just supporting, you know, uh, the, 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 the basic political divisions uh, in our country and in our world. You know, that's why it's so, it's so embarrassing when rock and roll, and this only pretty much happens with the Democrats when like big rock and roll stars, you know, play the democratic national convention, you know, and these, these, these rebels, when they're embracing, you know, one of the two most powerful political parties in America, there's nothing rebellious about that. There's nothing rebellious about about supporting the establishment in that way. Yeah, no, I always quote Gerard, Rene Gerard, like when you know when you when you stand with the truly vulnerable, you become an outcast as well. It's not the path to popularity. It's not the path to standing on a stage with balloons dropping all around you when you have a radical commitment to the vulnerable. I like how you call it punk rock. Have you seen the movie, which I've promoted the heck out of on the show, Jojo Rabbit yet? Have you seen Jojo Rabbit? I love it. I love it. No, it's a fantastic movie. Yep. And how sort of there's that punk rock, you know, it's just sort of liberalism erupts, and they, they, the, the clever use of music and that Hitler youth instructor who's really rebellious against the regime um, right. sort of morphs into a kind of a Billy Idol-like character as the film progresses. Right. And that's it, right? That's it's it's punk rock to stand with the vulnerable, to have friends outside of your tribe, to be thoughtless to the conventions, uh, to not kneel before the gods of the city. Like that is what it is to be punk rock. How did it become all of a sudden to kneel before every idol is somehow associated with, you know, living a rebellious life? No, it's the life of perfect conformity. Um, Right. And that's what, like, Carter, I love your book because it really, what it did is it, it, what it really clarified for me was that the vulnerable have been absolutely abandoned by law. And one of the things as a filmmaker, it told me is this is a job for the poets. This is a job for the storyteller. I think the first thing we need to do before the law is going to conform to the truth of the human person is we need to, we need to break through. We need to erupt. We need to share with people the truth about the, the beauty of the human. We need, I want everyone in the world to see the human person the way we do. It's the most beautiful created thing in the cosmos. And um, I guess that's our challenge. Agreed. And you run, you're a lawyer, but you run the Danicola Center for Ethics and Culture, which by the name, it, it shows so that this center is committed to creating a, what is the mission statement of the center? Well, what we do at the Center for Ethics and Culture, the Danicola Center, is to share the richness of the Catholic moral and intellectual tradition across a variety of disciplines, art, science, uh, literature, philosophy, theology, law, social science, um, at the highest level, uh, in conversation with other traditions so that we can, you know, basically be uh, Notre Dame's principal engine for Catholic mission on campus, but also to be Notre Dame's voice off campus in the name of human good 
such as a culture of life, uh, authentic human dignity and freedom, and the common good. Well, you're definitely doing. I would say you've trans. I mean, not no disrespect to Notre Dame. In a way, I think that the Nicholas Center has transcended Notre Dame. It's become, you know, I love um, going there, looking at your talks, following uh, everything that you do, and it's it's become an engine outside of Notre Dame, right? I mean, it's it's uh, you had an impact on on uh, influencers in law and culture and filmmaking, um, you know, in a, across, uh, well outside of Notre Dame, that's for sure. Yeah, well, so, and that's the ad, and we, we do that, we, again, we, we leave the wonderful confines of the Notre Dame campus and, again, as you say, speak in Notre Dame's voice to change those aspects of culture and politics and policy. Well, Carter Steen, I want to thank you for coming on the show. And everyone listening, I'm going to give – if anyone who donates to uh, thegreatcampaign.org or Movie to Movement this month is going to get a free copy of your book, Carter. And um, I can't wait to, to be giving those out. And I hope I get to have you uh, back on the show. No, I would love it. And keep doing what you're doing, Jason. It's God's work. And I hope your audience is, is safe and happy. And God bless everybody. I right, thank you, Carter. Aloha. All right, guys, if you go to movietomovement.com or thegreatcampaign.org this month and give a donation of $20 or more and put down that you want a book, we're going to send you a book. Oftentimes, people will say, oh, I bought the book. I, and if, if you just want to go order it on Amazon or wherever you buy books, that helps it go up the charts. And this is a book that deserves to be number one on the New York Times bestseller list. It is an important book. It is a great book. It is a beautiful book. And it is accessible. And when Carter sent me the manuscript, I'm thinking this is not going to be accessible. To me, I'm not a legal scholar. I'm not a lawyer. But it's accessible to anyone. And uh, it's also so beautifully written. So go to thegreatcampaign.org. Um, that's the Vulnerable People Project, which has sponsored this episode of The Jason Jones Show or Movie to Movement. And if you go to Amazon.com or Redbox and order Divided Hearts of America, you can see Carter Sneed because he is in our movie. This episode has also been brought to you by MyPillow, the best pillow in the world. Go to MyPillow.com. Use the code Jones for your deep, deep discounts. Please, please share this episode. Also, rate and review. I never ask. I never ask. We've been getting a lot of great ratings. We're a five-star podcast. A lot of great reviews. Give us five stars. Say something nice. I have a fragile ego. Until next time, it's the Jason Jones Show. This has been the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Ooh.